things are starting to take shape ahead of the second Grand Slam of the year. It's a little bit weird to say that the US Open is the second Slam of the year, but in this wacky 2020, we don't know what to expect. However, the draw is starting to take shape with Simona Halep and defending champion Bianca Andreescu withdrawing from the US Open, which is leaving a big hole at the top in New York, whilst on the men's side, Novak Djokovic has confirmed his participation at Flushing Meadows. Plenty more to get through on Breakpoint Podcast today. I'm your host, Val Febo. Joel Frucci joins me from his house, and uh, Joel, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, Val. Warmed up now, ready to go. Um, and uh, yeah, it's actually, it's not too bad today. Like, I'm just sitting in my room and looking outside, and the sun's out in Melbourne, so uh mm. You know, it's uh, something for us to be happy about. But um, I guess the other thing is that um, we've uh, got some tennis to review now, finally. I mean, definitely it's still, uh, I guess, the crux of it is about the US Open because it's creeping closer and closer. And And coronavirus. It's becoming clearer how it's going to look. But it's just great to actually be able to talk about some tennis that's going on, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And it's been fantastic. Lexington and Prague going on last week. Simona Hallett winning the tournament there. And Jennifer Brady uh, capturing her first career title in Lexington in a pretty stacked draw. So well done to both of them. We'll get to both of those results later. But the US Open uh, is probably the main the main talking point. We're going to have a chat with Courtney Walsh as well today, Joel, who... Um, who is the writer for the Australian Tennis Reporter for them, one of the best global tennis journos going around, was the ATP uh, Ron Bookman Media Excellence Award winner last year, which is um, such a prestigious award. So great to have someone of that calibre on our show, as um, as a lot of our guests have been this year. We're very humbled um, in that sense as well. But um, the US Open, Simona Halep last night announcing her withdrawal from the tournament, citing um, the health concerns um, of coronavirus and look we, we were kind of expecting it she was always umming and ahhing about whether she was going to go but um, the the news that we expected did come out and uh, Bianca Andreescu was the one that I wasn't expecting to withdraw because she pretty much declared her intention to go but um, she's out so it, it leaves the draw it leaves the, the women's draw especially really open six of the top ten players aren't there including the world number one and two and now the defending champion. So um, are you worried that there's going to be some more withdrawals before before the tournament comes around? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there were some more. But, um, you know, I think the thing, I think the thing now, Val, is that the day today is the 18th of August. There's less than two weeks until the US Open starts. So, um Obviously, it's only going to take really a click of the fingers for a player to decide um, that they're not going to go. Um, and certainly, uh, with what we know about about COVID nineteen, um, you know, if things get really bad, and they can do really quickly. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise at all to see more players uh, withdraw. But um, you know, there's only two weeks to go until it starts now. So um, you, you think. Uh, logistically if, if players have committed to the event um you know and they've got travel sorted and you know if they have to do any quarantine when they get there um you know we're hearing a lot about exemptions for tennis players um around the world at the moment certainly when they go to europe i'm not exactly sure what the situation is um in the states but you know two weeks is sort of that period um in in 2020 where after you travel it's kind of that uh you know that i guess that little space where you're kind of um you know in in a a bit of a state of flux where you're just you're just having to you know wait and see in some respects 
But um, no, look, I think at this point, um, you know, I'd, I'm expecting that most players uh, who have thrown their hat in the ring will play because it's just so close to the event now. I think it would it would be a real spanner in the works, um, you know, for themselves as well, um, more than anyone else, if they were to, to withdraw now. I think so, and I, I do agree. And it's it look it's it's quite interesting, and we'll talk more later after Courtney because Courtney does have some really good points about whether the tournament will have an asterisk around it and um, uh, we'll have some points to bring up after that chat. So stay tuned for that. Um, but I think you're, you're right. It, it will throw a massive spanner into the works for if, if big players do start to make more decisions to withdraw. But the problem is now Kanishi Corey has tested positive to coronavirus and he lives in Bradenton in Florida. So... That puts his tournament in jeopardy because we saw how lethargic Di- Grigor Dimitrov found yeah. or found We're himself. Not in jeopardy, he won't play. I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't think so as well. I, I, I don't think I don't see how he can play. Um, depending on how long he's had COVID for, um, we just don't know. But I don't think, yeah. especially with seeing how Grigor Dimitrov was at the Ultimate Tennis Showdown and how lethargic he still felt and how fragile his voice sounded and how tired he sounded. I don't think that he's going to... I don't think he's going to play. So that's another one, a former finalist that's going to be out of the tournament. Someone who can provide a lot of entertainment, a lot of danger in the draw. But um, it, it, it's so it's so weird that we're talking about a Grand Slam coming up right now, especially with with with, with the situation that we're in. But I, I read a piece for the first serve uh, yesterday and Tennis Menu that F1's mould of staying in Europe is something that tennis hasn't followed. And they, they both rely and are reliant on travel all around the world with, with races and tournaments in Australia, Europe, South America, North America, Asia. And there isn't an F1 race in Africa, but there is a, te- a couple of tennis tournaments there. But they are so reliant on global travel. But now we're getting to a point where F1 is just saying, you know what, we're going to stay in Europe. It's our spiritual home. We'll go to races that we've never gone to before, such as Mugello and in Portugal as well. And it's still not fraught, not without its danger, because Sergio Perez, the racing point driver, tested positive, missed both British Grand Prix, replaced by Nico Hulkenberg. But is tennis in a point at a point where it should be going or sta- sticking in Europe? Because 67 of the ATP Top 100 are European, and 62 of the WTA Top 100 a European. So that limits global travel for support staff as well, you'd think. And then everyone logistically, it's so easy to move freely between borders. So yes, there's a lot more cases in the European countries than there were a month ago as we prepare for the second wave. But would it be easier, Joel, if tennis was to stay in Europe? And I know that the USTA is desperate for the US Open to go ahead, but does it seem like a good idea that we're traveling from, say, Australia or Europe to America and then back to Europe? It just it, It's just minimizing the amount of kilometers traveled, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I think any, any, any measure you can take at the moment to minimize travel is probably what you want to do, not least because um, of the health risks, but also because you, I can imagine, would just be desperate to cut any cost possible where it's not needed. Um, so I guess that's looking at things from a sort of economic point of view, but obviously the health, the health risk is, is clearly the, um, the big one. Um, and 
you know, for, for a lot of uh, international events that you look at, a lot of them are taking on this kind of hub uh, type approach. Now, I think it's probably too late for tennis now. Um, oh, it's already set in stone. Yeah, it's already set in stone that we're you know we, we're going to in quotation marks Cincinnati, um, and we're going to to New York for the for the US Open. Um, so I think from that sense it's too late. But if you look at uh, as you raised Bell F one um, scattered across Europe, I suppose now it's still international, but it's minimising, and yeah. you could almost call Europe like I don't know like an extended hub because the reality is it is just even though it's one. I guess it's it's a continent, yes, but it's a collection of let's face it, smaller countries. So in in that sense, it works. Um, but yeah, I, I do wonder if if tennis was to go down that path, um, you know, how do you how do you substitute and supersede things like the US Open? Um, like what what would what would you do? Because obviously, we can we can still have the French Open, um, and clearly F one. Um, in, in, you know, to, to use that example, have made some adjustments about the events. Um, I know like the, the Europa League and the Champions League in soccer, they're, um, they've got these hubs going on where all the teams are basing themselves in Germany and Portugal. And it's kind of like a round-robin, one-off kind of series of events. But, you know, tennis has always had such that, like such an international setup with, with the US Open um, and you know it's it's always been like that. And I guess uh, with the four Grand Slams per year, if we were to not have the US Open, um, you know, how would we go about it? Would we simply yeah. just leave leave the US Open out and play? Uh, and and obviously Wimbledon's been cancelled, but would we simply leave the US Open out and just play the French Open as the lone Grand Slam, or would we try and fit in, uh, you know, two Grand Slams? Um, keep the points available, keep the prize money available and keep open that opportunity for for these players. But if that was to be the case, how would we go about it? Would um, you know, would you simply look for like a, a big facility of, you know, that, that, that use uh, hard, the hard surface and, I don't know, just kind of, um, you, you know, come up with this one-off event like... The US Open know, in Russia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know, like the St. Petersburg Open or whatever. Obviously, St. Petersburg has a, a tournament already. Um, you know, but it, like, is that even possible? Like, I mean, can, can yeah. tennis do that? I think it's it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a big step that, like, you know, like do you know what I'm sort of hinting yeah. at, Val? It's it's yeah. just so out of the ordinary to to do that, and at such short notice as well. Like, is there any if we were to go down that path? Is there anywhere in Europe that's actually capable of, of holding an event like that because and the other thing is if we were to do that with the US Open say for example if we were to move the US Open put put on uh, a similar event in Europe um, under a different moniker but with the same surface the same prize money um, you know the same opportunity same points you know um, like is, is it even logistically possible like can it be done I don't think so I don't think there's any real massive hardcore facilities over over in Europe. Like there's Paris Bercy where the where the um Paris Masters one thousand is. Um but I think that's only really equipped to hold a Masters one thousand. Like the court sizes aren't that big. It's an indoor tournament so it's not really gonna have the the same cachet and we've already got a Grand Slam there. So unless yeah. unless Wimbledon maybe maybe did Wimbledon cancel too early. 
Um, maybe we could have had Wimbledon over there because we're playing a pretty European-centric tournament after this month. So, or European-centric calendar after this month. So, you're right. It's it, it's almost impossible to have a second Grand Slam if the US Open wasn't going ahead. Um, so, it would only really be the French Open. But, um, yeah, unless we played like the US Open brought to you by Greenland or Russia or, I don't know, I'd like to yeah. say, or maybe go to the North Pole. I don't know. But um, and, and, then, and then and the other thing we have to we have to consider it as well. If if that was the case, if that happened, if the U.S. Open was held in another country and essentially run at another facility, like then what happens contractually? Like who gets yeah who gets the broadcast revenue? Um, who's in charge of organising things? If 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 it's a big if, but if crowds are allowed in, who takes you know a cut of the tickets? Um, there's all these things, so I just think it's just too much at short notice to work yeah. out. And um, you know, if uh, if that was going to happen and we were going to stick with two Grand Slams, you'd have to think that it would have been Wimbledon and the French. Um, but it, and if we were to go down this this hub scenario uh, in the situation that Wimbledon is cancelled, which it is, and it hasn't been played and it won't be played, um, you know, I think realistically the only alternative would be that you only have one Grand Slam, and that's. Um, and that's the French Open. Yep. But then, you know, obviously the question comes up, well, you know, what, what happens? Like, does that get past the players? I, I would say probably not because it takes away a big avenue for, um, for for them to earn some money. So, I mean, it's just, it's just an, again, we speak a lot about vicious cycles at the moment, tennis and COVID-19. It's just another one of those ones. It's just, there's so many things at play. It's almost, it's almost impossible just to put up a scenario and there's not, uh, a party that's not losing out in a very significant way. Yeah, I think so. It's it, and and you're right. It's been so, it's been such a difficult time for tennis. And you know, I think we should be celebrating the fact that tennis is back, and that um, you know, we we want tennis to be back. We do, but at what mm. cost is is the question? We don't want the players to be jeopardising their health. We don't want the global population. We don't want more deaths because COVID has been such an evil an evil notion in 2020 and, and, and in global history, this will forever be remembered for centuries to come as the time where the world shut down. So we want tennis back, but we don't want it to be at the cost of the global population. That's been both yours yep. and my stance for, for this, for the entirety of, of this year so far, but tennis is back, Joel, and we'll get to a bit more us open stuff later, but um, the withdrawals, you know, they're not good, but unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with things like that. But Prague and Lexington took place last week. Jennifer Brady winning her first title um, over, who was it in the final? It was uh, Jill Teachman of uh, of Switzerland. So good win for her, her first title. And that, that draw there, Shelby Rogers over Serena Williams in the quarterfinals. 1-6-6-4-7-6 there. Question without notice. Actually, I think I did give you notice before the show. Um, so, yeah. question with notice. Um, after this result, it is her first tournament back, but can you see Serena winning another slam in her career and equaling Margaret Court's record? Yeah, I can. I can. I think as as long as Serena is on the tour, I think it's always possible that she can win another slam. Uh she is just such an athlete. You just, and obviously she's had, you know, she's had Olympia now, um, but you just cannot write Serena off. Um, even even before we restarted Val, we spoke a lot about it back in 2018, um, and she just continued to prove us wrong. 
um, whether yep. it was winning slams or, or otherwise. Yep. Um, you know, Serena is, yeah, I, I think I think she's taught us a, a lesson. Um, she really has. Uh, you know, she's just got she's got this this build on on the WTA circuit that is just capable of beating anyone on on her day, and we've we've seen that for so many years now. Um, and you know, I just I don't think that we can we can write Serena off really until she actually retires. Yeah, uh, I'm getting to a point now where I'm thinking she's had since she's come back, she's made the I think the Wimbledon final twice, um, and the U.S. Open final twice, and that's what and that's what worries me that she's had I think four shots at a slam. And just can't seem to, and can't seem to get there. Which is, and she, she's had chances in those matches, and had chances to come back and and win. And I think, let me double check what it is. Yeah, so she's made the Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals in the last two years and lost them. And that means she's lost her four, her last four Grand Slam finals, all in straight sets to Kerber, Osaka, Halep, and Andreescu. And that's what worries me that she's gotten there. But she hasn't been able to to win them, and she's had chances in a couple of those sets to really make them her own, win the set, and then go on and go forth. But against players that she would normally beat in Kerber and Halep, Andreescu and Osaka kind of have that X factor in that they hit the ball pretty hard. But you know they're players that she would generally beat. So I think that's what worries me. And after losing to Shelby Rogers, after winning the first set six one, after a win over her sister, who is probably the hardest player for Serena to beat considering how well they know each other's games. I don't think Serena's going to win another one. I'm actually, I'm penciling her out. Well, I mean, you know, I look at the fact that she's actually still able to make Grand Slam finals, and I think that says a lot about... But um, is she the, is the she now, though? Is she? Because she lost in the third round of the Australian Open at the start of the year. Yeah. Um, no, but I, no, I still think it says a lot, and... You know, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a really good thing for the for the sport and the whole WTA tour. To be honest, that um, the I guess if you if you want to call it the pack uh, are catching her now. Mm. Um, obviously, she had such a stranglehold on on um, on the tour for for so long. Um, I, I think it's really good that uh, a lot of players are now not only challenging her but actually able to beat her. But still, uh, you know. Um, you know, she's just she's just such a supreme athlete. I just don't think you can you can write her off. Um, you know, if if she if she really gets rolling, Serena, there's you're not going to stop her because mm-hmm. she's just got so much power, um, and you know her movement is just so good. Um, and it, it, particularly the serve, if the serve gets going, um, like let, not to mention the ground strokes, but if the serve gets going, you're not going to. No yeah. one's beating Serena. No, no one. Not at all. But. At the moment, I I don't think I don't think Serena's I don't think Serena is winning this is winning this U.S. Open. I think um Chris uh, Carolina Pliskova. I think this is her a really good chance for her to win her first Grand Slam. Sophia Kennan, big chance for her to go two from two this year. Um and then look, Serena will probably I think Serena's going to have a top four seeding. Um, with all the players that, that are going to be out, six of the top ten. So Serena will have a top four seeding. She's going to be a chance to win it, but. I don't think I can't see her winning another slam. I, I I reckon I can say and look, I've been wrong before. I said Djokovic wouldn't win another one after he had such a long injury layoff and he's come out 
in uh, in droves and and won and I think since 2018 he won three in a row. Then he won 2019 Wimbledon. That's four. 2020 Australian Open. He's won five since that point. Uh, 2019 Wimbledon shouldn't have won, but we digress. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's look Serena. Serena. She look if she's at her best, she can, but. I don't know whether she's going to be able to sustain that for seven matches, and that Shelby Rogers match. I know it was her first tournament back. Hopefully, she can prove us wrong because to equal Margaret Court's record would be would be simply stunning. But I'm not sure that she will. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, let's get to Courtney Walsh, Joel. Yep, sounds good. And Joel, our special guest on today's show is one of tennis's best global journalists, and he so happens to be a fellow Melbourneian. He writes for the Australian, and he was the recipient of the prestigious ATP Tour Ron Bookman Media Excellence Award. His name is Courtney Walsh. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. No, thanks so much for having me. I'm really, uh, really happy to be on and uh, very glad with what you guys are doing. First things first, Courtney. I guess uh, how have you handled uh, quarantine in in Melbourne like us? How's um how's it all been going for you? Or not quarantine? I guess lockdown. Um, it's pretty it's pretty full on. But how how have you found it from your perspective? Yeah, it's very ground top day. I uh, I wake up, do some reading, wander across, get a takeaway coffee, walk back through the park, sit down, and start uh, writing. Writing a little bit more about footy this year than tennis. Which uh, look, I'd love to be doing more tennis, but that's. Uh, by uh, by virtue of being obviously locked down in Melbourne, it's a little hard to be on the road, but uh, still very keen to see what happens in the next couple of months. And uh, you know, getting fitter, going for a run, not drinking much. It's uh, it's very much uh, a change from what would normally be the case. Well, that's good. Yeah, I guess a lot of people have been exercising a lot more because it's pretty much the only thing that we can do. So um, I know Absolutely. I've been walking a lot and Joel, Joel has been as well. So um, yep. fingers crossed that we can just all um, get that shredding body for summer. But um, uh, firstly, <laughs> we'll, um, we'll... And missing Melbourne tennis and things like that as well. Not being able to do that has been a, yeah. a bit of a frustration in the last few weeks, but that's, uh, that's by the by. Yeah, it has been, and I guess um, just not being able, and yeah, not being able to go to courts and everything. I know, uh, I know, Joel Joel plays a lot on that on the Tuesday night circuit, and um, yeah, it's it yeah. would be it would be bloody difficult not being able to go to go and do it. But your your experience of um or your view from afar of tennis uh, so far this season, what have your thoughts been on um on how tennis has actually handled COVID nineteen? Because there's been a lot of controversy we know with the Adria Tour, but there's also been a lot of good with what Nick Kyrgios has done, and I think he's kind of in the voice of reason. So, how have you handled um, what what the main bodies have done, and um, or how have you sort of seen it all? Because it's been kind of confusing from a lot of different points of view. Well, I think it shows the uh, the global nature of the sport that there are different different areas that try different things. I think seen exhibitions uh, through Europe, through uh, the UK through America and different sides of the country, LA down to Florida and also up to West Virginia with the World Team Tennis. And even in Australia with uh, the uh, UTR events sort of in the capital cities, I think it's been interesting to see what can be done and how things can be done differently. Uh, some things I think have worked well, others I'm not so sure about. Uh, I know the Adria Tour I think came from a, a place of good heart. I, I don't have any doubt about that in terms of, you know, it's been such a warm torn area no professional tennis there through years and clearly produced some amazing players so i think from you know you start from a place of good heart clearly there were issues and uh 
some of the things probably could have been handled far better. I would hope that uh, some lessons have been learned from there as we look to, uh, you know, as we're now in the midst of uh, the tour resuming. Um, it's been interesting talking to a few players, also to different, say, tournament directors uh, who have got events going on from locally. You know, Peter Johnson, a Melbourneian, who he's uh, a tournament director for uh, St. Petersburg in a few weeks, so he's got some good news that he can go ahead with that. He had due high cancel, yeah. though, but he was sitting in a state of limbo going, can I travel? Do I not travel? You know, how do I go? What do I do with exemptions? Talking to John Millman uh, last week about the exemptions that he needed to go through as a seasoned traveller, some of the uh, the hoops that they've had to jump. So it's been it's been really interesting. Even the talk about the tours, I suppose, some sort of combination. To an extent, there's already there's always been some collaboration, and the discussion about the tours rejoining is not new. Uh, I think the hurdles are still significant in terms of uh, that ever happening, but. Uh, it's been interesting in a time of crisis to see some cooperation and collaboration as well. I think that's uh, that's a good pointer for the future. Yeah, and uh, Val wrote actually a really good uh, opinion piece, Courtney, for the first serve during the week. So I might let him um, ask you about that and maybe get get your thoughts on on what he said because I actually thought it was a great idea. But um, that piece that you did write in the Weekend Australian uh, for John Millman and, uh, any listeners that haven't, uh, checked that out can go and head to your, uh, Twitter as well and, uh, and grab the link, uh, for that. But, um, I mean, speaking to John, um, what, what kind of vibe did you get from him about, um, you know, his willingness to travel? Because certainly the, the, I guess, consensus from the Australian players has certainly been one of, of trepidation, but, um, from actually reading your, your piece, the kind of, uh, I guess, the suggestion I got from John was, um, you know, very much a case of, well, this is my, this is my living. Um, you know, I need to, to go and do it and, and really just have faith in the USTA and the organisers that they're going to leave no stone unturned just to keep the players safe. Yeah, and I think the point he made, and as I said, I'm not so sure it's a general consensus across the board, certainly those that are better off in terms of your Ash parties or your, your curiosities, mm. et cetera, absolutely putting their health first. But for others, we shouldn't forget for someone like a Madison Inglis or a... Uh, or a Lizzie Cabrera, this is a great opportunity to go and get some wins. So I'm not, I'm not certain it's a consensus across the board. Obviously, there's trepidation about travelling at a time of uh, a pandemic. No doubt that players are concerned about the potential impact on their health. Uh, you know, the worst-case scenario is obviously diabolical, but even uh, milder cases can lead to significant issues for tennis players. So that's that's clearly a concern. But for someone, as I said, someone like a Lizzie Cabrera or Madison Inglis, James Duckworth, who we know, uh, he's playing in Brisbane this week, but he'll head off uh, in a couple of weeks as well. Jordan Thompson, if they can get a couple of wins together, this can really springboard a season for them. So it's, they're, you know, it's a, it's an advantage for some. Clearly, for others, they put their health first. But I do wonder what would have happened if the tours hadn't frozen the rankings as such, or, or offered that indemnity in terms of not losing ranking points. Whether that would have forced more players to go. And I'm glad they weren't forced to make that decision. For John, no doubt, he, he spoke to him earlier in the year and he said, look, he's had, he's had a great year. I think at that time he'd won, already won sort of $400,000, $450,000. So he started off the season pretty well with a couple hundred grand at the Australian Open. Uh, sorry, at the ATP Cup. And then, you know, the Australian Open, the second round, there's another 100000 or so kicking into the uh, kitty. So financially, that's not that bad. But when you consider his career ratings, about $5 million Australian. You take away all the uh, all the money that he's sort of had to offload in terms of travel, in terms of medical expenses, different things like that. And I'm sure you guys have discussed this with players in the past. Yep. It doesn't go that far necessarily. So for him, he's 31, needs to get on the road to actually earn some money because he's probably 
realistically, you'd hope he's got two or three more years left and, and players do go longer, but he's got a history of injuries, so he knows that when he's fit and healthy, he needs to get some money coming in. Yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, from I guess from an Aussie perspective as well, um, you know, we've spoken to guys like Mark Coleman's and, and also Chris yep. O'Connell. And um, we've spoken a lot about, um, you know, I guess this idea of the, the US Open and whether it actually is a Grand Slam by nature as well as, as by name, I suppose. And the whole idea of having that asterisk and, uh, you know, a lot of the big names pulling out. But I think certainly the flip side is, and you've raised it a bit there, is that um, as some of the big players pull out, there's certainly opportunities that come up for a lot of the, I guess, the smaller names. Um, and, and that's certainly the case for guys like uh, Mark Collins and, and uh, Chris O'Connell um, as an example. So I guess if we look at it from that perspective, it certainly does kind of um, really open the door for a lot of these players to actually uh, really springboard their careers, if you like, as you said. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you talk about Mark, who uh, who had such a great year, uh, you know, start, great start to the season. Chris, who was fantastic last year, and you know, we read about him joining mm. a centre league queue for a while. I mean, that's that's really mm. difficult. Matt Reed, Matt Reed driving forklifts at his uh, brother's quarry is a stonemason. It's <laughs> it's a complete change, and to actually get some cash coming in, it's really difficult. And you know, I've got a lot of a lot of friends in the tennis coaching business uh, who aren't working at the moment, so I'm sure they'd love to have that opportunity. Obviously, there are you know, complications on the other side, and, and I mean, no way downplaying that. I think that's, uh, you know, very, very much uh, a person who thinks that the health situation should come first, but I can understand why these players are making that choice to go. So, uh, and I think Val's made the point about the asterisk uh, for, uh, for the Open. Look, I'm, I'm of the other camp in that regard. I uh, My viewpoint in that regard is that if we go, if we go down that, if we, if we label an asterisk, I think we give too much credence to, you know, there's certainly a push out of the US, for example, to downplay the achievements of Margaret Court, who won 24 Grand Slams. The Australian Open in the early 80s it was a very weak field. You know, we won't get into big players. Do we, do we dismiss those tournaments as, uh, as Grand Slam events? Do we not count them at all? I, I feel like if you've got, yes, six of the top 10 women are missing, but you've also got, if you ever look at the top eight seeds of the women's, there's three Grand Slam champions there. Uh, you know, there's also two two more finalists. So there's some great quality there. Outside the top ten, there's women that have won Grand Slam. So I think there's good quality in the tournament. And from the men's perspective, yes, Roger's not there, and that's a, that's a real shame that he wasn't going to be there anyway. Nadal has won, obviously, uh, the defending champion. Okay, that's, that's an issue in his fit. He could have gone, but... I still think that there's some great players there. I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens in terms of uh, whether, say, for example, Novak handles the quarantine period well. Does it suit someone like Medvedev, who was very, uh, you know, one-track mind? Um, do we see a young up-and-comer like Sitspass, who's seated fourth, all of a sudden make that jump, and what that means for the future? Is this the uh, is this the tournament there that makes some of the younger players, if they can get through and win or make a final? that it makes them make the next step, you know, in coming years. So I, it's, it's, I absolutely understand both points of view, but from my mind, I think it's really, if, if you've got a grand slam, you could have been seven best of fives, and the players you're playing are fantastic, as it is. Ash Barty could get beaten in the first round or the second round or the third round. Serena could get knocked out early of slams. I, I'm not one that I think diminishes the significance of the slam. I, I, and, and, and it always used to be a real bugbear of mine talking to some Peers from overseas when they would uh, downplay courts achievements, I in no way believe in her viewpoints at all. Absolutely not, but I do believe 
that if you've won a Grand Slam, you can only beat the players there that are in front of you. Yeah. And look, you do make an absolute... And I didn't even think of that. You make a wonderful point that the Australian Open didn't get strong fields when when the likes of Court were playing, even in, in the 80s. I think um, Bjorn Borg didn't come down here very much or the 70s, and I think he only ever came down here twice. So... Um, yeah, the travel was was a big factor in players coming to Australia. But speaking of of actually just generally being in the US, so I wrote a piece for the first serve about how Formula One has maintained all of their Grand Prix this year and just molded themselves in Europe and just not leaving. And that's the spiritual home of the sport. The spiritual home of the sport in tennis started in Europe. Sixty seven of the top ATP of the ATP top hundred are European. Sixty two of the top WTA um, players in the top 100 um, uh, from Europe. Should tennis be doing the same thing rather than a lot of players going from Europe to America, then back, and then players from Australia going to America, then Europe, players from Africa and all over the world? It just it minimizes travel. Logistically, it's a lot easier to go around Europe rather than flying over the Atlantic. It just makes more sense. Do you think that going to the US is a mistake or do you think that it had to happen? Uh, look, I, I think it had to happen. So I, I can absolutely understand that viewpoint as well, Val, and I think you, you made some good points uh, in that in that piece. I, I suppose one thing from Formula One perspective is America's got super, like Formula One in the uh, US is not the major motorsport. It's no. uh, it's never been the major motorsport in the US. So you would argue that if it was the major sport in the US in terms of motor racing, I suspect we'd find it there. I I, I think that that's it, yeah. There's an issue there in terms of tennis. It's it's not. I mean, as I said, it's not an ideal situation. Going to New York, the health situation is slightly better, but it's still far worse than what it is in Australia. It's uh, it's not great, and through the rest of the US, we see just a wildfire through uh, through states. The precautions put in. I mean, John Millman, the, the Australian players, for example, having to fly through Europe to get into JFK is, I guess, it shows the extremes in terms of normally you would go through LA. Yeah, you have far greater chance of picking up something in transit. We saw Millman. And I'm sure you guys saw that as well with the mask and the, the the heavy face protection on. His whole reason for going early was that if he actually picked it up en route to America, at least he had some sort of time to get over COVID before the US Open. So he was he was very mindful of going. God, I, I, I'm a chance here to miss, you know, Cincinnati if I if I fall uh, ill. But I feel like it's if we if for example we look to the Australian summer. If the US doesn't go ahead, if the French Open, and I'll be, I'm, I'm actually more concerned about the French Open now than what I am about the US, because I think the mountain cases in in Europe are really a concern. Yeah. We saw last week that, uh, you know, basically the UK shut off the ball. If you if you come back from uh, France or from Spain, you're now going to have to go into quarantine for a fortnight. So I, I'm more concerned about a second wave in the U, uh, in uh, in France necessarily than the US at the moment, because if you can lobby New York. You, you camped out in uh, Long Island, and I know that area of Long Island. It's not there's not a lot going on there. I mean, it's it's very uh, busy, very full of people. John Millman said that he said that some of the players who uh, who arrived at this hotel, he reckons they're going to get a big shock. He said, "I've stayed there because I've been able to afford to stay anywhere else." But these guys, some of the bigger guys, are not going to be they're not going to love this accommodation. It's not by no means flash, but I can see if you can travel from a bus to a tennis stadium and back again, similar to what's happened in the AFL, similar to what's happening in the uh, NRL, I think you can make it work. Yep. The transit arrangements to, to Europe are interesting. As I said, I'm a bit concerned about Europe um, 
because of the freedom of movement between borders. I, I'm a little worried about it. So uh, I think you, I think your points are very sound in terms of trying to base it in one, but I'm just not so sure in a sport that goes the whole way around the world whether that's that's feasible necessarily. And I think from an Australian perspective, we desperately want the US Open to go well without any yep. flaws. Fingers crossed that happens. And we want the French Open to go well without any flaws because if that happens, then we're a hope in January. Yep. And I think that's, you know, that's we, we sort of got a barrack for the success story here. Yeah, I yeah. 100% agree uh, with that. Yeah, and um, just on the, on, the, on the French court, I think what's a really interesting point about it is um, I guess there's clearly a lot of stake, a lot at stake, I should say, for Roland Garros because they've spent all that yep. money um, on on the roof, obviously, and you know we've spoken a lot about um, the the tennis economy, but I, I really feel like if um, even if the French Open goes ahead and no fans are allowed in, which I think is the right way to go about it, regardless. Um, I know look, uh, certainly we've we've heard that they're really trying to persist with getting fans through the gates, but I, I hope that doesn't happen because it seems like it would be extremely irresponsible if that happened. But um, I mean, I mean, it almost seems like uh, regardless of how it goes for for Roland Garros, um, you know, whether they play the event without fans or if at an extreme it gets cancelled, they're going to lose out <laughs> pretty badly. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I mean we, we saw that they're planning to have, I think it's a 60%, 60% capacity uh, around the grounds. Now, it's not it's not a massive sort of site, Roland Garros. It certainly stretches long, but it's not a massive site compared to, say, Flushing Meadow. So it's a... You know, sixty percent of people in the, in the grounds is it's a lot. I think I think that's a big step. And then ten thousand for the final, I think, is what they were looking at yeah. in terms of attendances. Now we know the French uh, the French mayor has put sorry the Parisian mayor has put out an ordinance in the last uh, last week saying that gatherings of over five hundred people are, are now going to be banned as a result of recent spike of, in cases. So how the French Open or the Roland Garros plans, I suppose, correspond with the city arrangements i think there's a clear contradiction there so be interesting to see what happens in the next six weeks on that front um again i'll be fascinated to see what happens uh in terms of the australians who actually go so john norman for example he was saying that if he's beaten early he'll he'll jump on board that two or three day transfer window because they want them out of out of new york there's a two or three day transfer window into austria so kissable he said planet altitude doesn't suit me he said my game is not suited to Planet Dallas Street, but if it's a way to get to Europe, well, then that's the way I'll go. We know that Rome's been removed again, I think rescheduled again yeah. to the time when Madrid was initially on. So uh, it's it's a fascinating time, and, and I think any, saying anything with any certainty is you know, so fraught with danger. It's, I just sort of hope that things can go smoothly in the next uh, few weeks uh, in the States. And, and in Europe as well, because that gives us some hope. And then after that, we've seen some indoor events scheduled through Europe uh, for later in the year, and, and obviously into the ATP finals. Um, it'd be great if we could get a full uh, three months of, uh, of tennis in the next few. You know, for, for people sit, like us sitting at home and uh, you know watching on watching on the couch or covering the events, it'd be great to see. But you know, I, I guess we wait and see. Yeah, and at least it's going to give us some news to talk about, I think. But just final one before we <laughs> no, yeah. before we let you go. Um, it's been there's been talks that the players were going to have to quarantine in Rome before the tournament, uh, before the Masters event there. But 
The problem is Europe or Italy is preparing for a second wave itself and they were one of the hardest hit countries early on by COVID-19. They've sort of stemmed with their summer. But now there's talks that the, the quarantine won't have to happen. But do you see that as a mistake? Should the players actually be quarantining when they get to Europe just to ensure that the extra spread doesn't get there? And you say that you're concerned about Europe as well, and I am too. And it just it makes me nervous that they're going to go straight from your, uh, the US into Austria and then and then possibly just straight to Rome with no quarantine. It makes me worried. Yeah, I guess they're working, and we'll base it back to the say the AFL sort of protocols here, the Australian Football League protocols, where if you're if you spent your two weeks in quarantine in Queensland, you can then travel freely between Adelaide and Brisbane, for example. Now, if you fly into Perth, you have to go back into quarantine. The two weeks served in uh, in Queensland doesn't count in terms of Perth, so it's a different sort of border regime. What they've clearly been able to do, the ATP officials, is convince uh, European countries, because we know that you can't actually travel from the States into Europe at the moment if you're a regular person. It's banned. You're not allowed to, given the, uh, the health status of, uh, of the States. But they've clearly been able to satisfy European officials that the, the, the protocols and the regime they've got in place in New York for the Open is sufficient in terms of quarantine. So effectively, these people are not going to, you know, the players involved are not going to leave either the hotels or the, or the tournament site. And so therefore, you know, if, if, you're, if you're virus-free coming in, theoretically you're virus-free coming out because you're not going to have a chance to uh, come into contact. So, so they're saying over that two, three weeks, these people are already going to be quarantined. So that's clearly what they've done. Whether it's the right thing, look, I'm not a, an expert in terms of that, but, I, but I, can, I can understand the logistics or the logical thinking behind that. If, yeah. you, if you're not contacting anyone, the, the problem is, at any stage, it could be a breach. We saw uh, you know, Pat Cash on Instagram yesterday saying the restrictions are uh, over the top. Well, that surely puts you know, the whole thing at risk if you think they're over the top. And, yeah. and I can't, you know, if you if if, the, if some of the wealthier players are, are using their own private residences through the US Open and paying private security to be there twenty four hours a day, well, you know, how much is it to, to then say, I, I, I think there's an issue there. So no doubt there's issues, but I can understand the logistics behind it. I just, yeah, it's it's risky. But if it all goes smoothly, well, then we get through. But there's a lot, lot of people to jump through. Yeah, and being in Melbourne, we all know about security guards after what's happened with the hotel quarantine here. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, no, there's, um, there's a few... There's a few um, a few things that need to be ironed out, but fingers crossed we, we can get the full three months of tennis. And Courtney, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, you're one of the best journos going around and fingers crossed we see much more of your work regarding tennis um, in 2020. You can go back to back with the Ron Bookman Award. Uh, I would have thought that's uh, not going to happen for me this year. It was a bit of a surprise last year, but uh, I appreciate the words. But really uh, happy to be on any time you need. And uh, as I said, it's, uh, it's great to see uh, a proper dedicated... Uh, Another proper dedicated podcast in tennis in Australia. I think that's a really good thing. So keep going, guys. We appreciate that, Courtney. Courtney Walsh, thank you very much and stay safe. Pleasure. Courtney Walsh there joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast, one of tennis's best journos going around the world. Joel, how good was that? Yeah, very good, Val. Just as I recovered from my coughing fit just uh, off air. Um, yeah, no, but it was uh, it was awesome. Um, really good uh, really good to chat to, to Courtney. He's obviously a wealth of knowledge and 
Uh, it was a really interesting point that he made about um, the whole asterisk thing. Obviously, that's it's something that we've been debating really ad nauseum um, on our show. Um, and, you know, just, I guess, uh, how much credibility the event actually has with all these uh, all these top players uh, with withdrawing. But, you know, I think, you know, Cordy raised a lot of valid points and I think certainly the, the flip side of, of things is, um, you know, is that, uh, you know, is, is it a bit, I guess, disrespectful to, you know, some of these, you know, all these other players really, whether they're ranked highly or they're ranked somewhat lowly? Is it, I guess, a bit disrespectful to, uh, you know, sort of dash the credibility of the event when at the end of the day, um, a lot of these players, you know, need to, need to make a living, they need to make some money, they haven't made a single cent for for so long in this in this shutdown period and, and really are, you know, risking risking their, their well-being in a lot of respects by jumping on a plane and heading over there and uh, actually participating in the event because they need to make that money. Um, so I guess you can look at it from that side of things too. And, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really intriguing argument. There's, again, there's so many, there's so many sides, sides of it and things that you can pull out. So it was great to sort of get his perspective on that. Yeah, it was. And I think he, he used Margaret Court as the example. It's like, does, do people diminish her 24 slams? Because so many people never traveled to the Australian Open um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, and to the early 80s as well. Bjorn Borg only ever came to Melbourne or to the Australian Open once in 1974, made the third round. And this guy's considered to be one of the greatest players of all time. He only ever came down here once. I'm offended. And then John McEnroe was a four-time Grand Slam champion before he came here in 1983, but he only ever played at Melbourne Park or in Melbourne five times at the Australian Open. So that's that just shows how hard or how difficult it was to get big players down to Melbourne. Nowadays, that certainly wouldn't happen because of the I think globalization of everything really and travel so much easier. But I think there's a, there's a counter side to the argument that you're saying. We back in the day we never would have thought of it as an asterisk, and because of the tournaments and the players that came to certain tournaments in the early '80s and and late '70s, um, you know that that kind of diminishes the asterisk argument now. But the thing is, this normally wouldn't happen at a tournament like this now. So, you know, we wouldn't be expecting big tournaments to just to lose these. Uh, these sort of draw cards so willingly and so easily. And for six of the top 10 players on the WTA to be out, for Roger and Rafa to be out, um, and for other players to, to withdraw, that kind of sways the argument a little bit. But I think Courtney has done enough to to change my viewpoint on the asterisk side of things because he does make a very valid one there. Because, like, Beyond Borg only ever coming here once. Come on. Like mm. that that that's that's ridiculous. That would imagine Rafael Nadal, only ever, you know, King of the French Open, only ever came here came here once. You know, that would be that would be so disappointing. And Borg, you know, won Wimbledon so many times, won the French Open, I think one how many Frenches did he win? Seven? Or let me double check this. I'm gonna double check the stat. We've got to be right. Um but yeah, it's <laughs> Yeah, I think Courtney swayed me. Has he swayed you, Joel? Yeah, I think he has. Uh, you know, if we look at the season holistically, every event that gets played, um, you know, when, when say, like in years to come, when we jump on Wikipedia and we look at, 
whatever on Wikipedia. Um, you know, 2020 Roland Garros, 2020 US Open, I don't know, 2020, you know, top seed Open in Lexington, whatever it is. Every single one of those events is going to have some kind of reference to COVID-19 and the effect that it's had on on the calendar. So I, I think it's it's almost it's almost, you know, universally accepted in a lot of respects by now that, you know, things have had to change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just think, I just think now that looking at things from the perspective of especially lower ranked players that have suffered so much through the shutdown period uh, of the pandemic that, um, you know, it is probably a, a little, a little disrespectful, uh, you know, to, to say, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, and and we have said it in the past, obviously, but to say that these these two Grand Slams, the U.S. Open and the French Open, mean less, I think that'd kind of be you know a bit of a slap in the face for them because they they really need these um they really need these these opportunities to you know essentially make their living and you know even in that in our chat with with Courtney, we quoted two guys that you know we know um, have a great opportunity here, Mark Holmans and, and Chris O'Connell. They have um, you know, automatic entry into the main draw of the US Open. They probably wouldn't have this opportunity uh, in, in a regular season. They appreciate that this is a great chance for them to really advance their careers and it could be a major breakthrough for them yeah. um, to get some get some points um, and, you know, get some prize money. So, uh, you know, I think when we think of it from, from their point of view, um, yeah, it, it certainly... It certainly, for me, really puts things in, in a little bit of perspective and says, well, you know, you know what, these guys and, and girls in that mould, they're going to be desperate to, to perform at this event because, yeah. like these events, because there is just so much at stake for them. Yeah, and just back to my stats before, it was uh, he won six French Opens and five Wimbledons, so just wanted to make sure that was okay be on board. But his records at Slams, eighty nine percent winning rate. That is that is phenomenal, and he was at ninety six percent winning rate at the French Open and ninety three percent winning ratio at the at Wimbledon. So just absolutely phenomenal. The fact that he only ever came to Australia once is is beyond me, and that and that works out for Courtney's point so so well. And you're right, um, it, it's going to mean so much to the players that have never played a U.S. Open main draw match before, and same with the same with the French. So it's fantastic to see that so many of these players are getting that opportunity, and for. Chris O'Connell and Mark Polmans, especially those guys um, that we've had on the show, um, we're stoked for them. And, and to get them into the main draw, we want to see them go very deep into this tournament and fingers crossed that they do. So, um, yeah, I, I I agree 100% with what you said. But um, should we get to Benoit of the Week, Joel? Yeah, I reckon we should. And uh, the great thing about this Benoit of the Week is it's another positive. So it's, I know. Uh, we're, on a bit of a, we're on a bit of a positive streak. Well, other than, uh, other than well... Both of us, me a few weeks ago and you last week, but uh, um, I'm on two. Yeah, no, you are on two, so you're actually catching up to to Novak Djokovic. Oh, you're only no. one behind him, but yeah. um, no, this week it's uh, Benoit of the week goes to uh, Jennifer Brady, and uh, obviously um, she uh, won her first uh, WTA singles title in, in Lexington, as we've already mentioned, and uh, she outlasted a pretty impressive field. Obviously, um, uh, the Williams sisters, Victoria Azarenka, Coco Goff. Uh, Jill Teekman, who she beat in the final. Yep. Uh, Cece Ballas, who's playing some really good tennis again. Great to see her back. Um, but she's also now cl- uh, climbed uh, nine spots in the rankings to a career high uh, ranking of 40. So all up a really, really good week for her and um, perfect way, really, to go uh, 
to go into into the US Open or at least to give herself a bit of a springboard uh, after the restart. Yep, exactly right. Fantastic week for her. Our Benoit of the year, Tally, celebrating our favourite Frenchman, uh, the enigmatic Benoit pair. You can either have a good week or a bad week or everything in between. Uh, Novak Djokovic on three, Val Febo, myself on two. I don't like that. Um, Benoit on one, uh, Joel Frigi on one, yourself, uh, Donald Trump, Roger Federer, Fight MND, Fabio Fonini, Dominika Sabukova, Alexander Zverev, Diana Yastrzemska, Jeannie Bouchard, Ozark, the TV show, Tommy Haas, Kim Kleisters, and Nick Kyrgios, all on one point as well. So it's pretty tight at the top in the Benoit of the Year nominations, but uh, look, who knows? We could have a storm, someone storm through and, and take the win, but I think it's going to be Novak Djokovic for Benoit of the Year, unless I do something absolutely ridiculous. But uh yeah, Joel, uh, thank you very much for today's show. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Yeah, no, it's been good, Val. Um, yeah, catch you next week. Thank you very much. And I just I, before we do go, I want to dedicate this show to one of our dear family friends, Josie Natali, who uh, passed away uh, a week and a half ago. Um, Joe, my dad and I, and, and his son Jacob would go to the footy and watch Richmond every week. And um, yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, it's just it's been a difficult week and a half. So to to Rebecca, Celeste, Jacob, and um, and Eve, uh, pass on the condolences. It's been a very hard week. And Joe, you'll be you'll be sorely missed. So we love you, and um, and yeah, we uh, rest in peace. Uh, you're an absolute. Uh, legend of a person, but um, yeah, on a on a bit of a sad note, you can um, you can follow us on Twitter as well. Uh, Breakpoint Pod, Insta Breakpoint Podcast, search Breakpoint Pod One on Facebook or Breakpoint. You can like us, subscribe on Wushka, um, and Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. I think we're going to be on Amazon Audible very soon, um, so you can subscribe on there wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media. We'll catch you next week, tennis fans.